Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive help supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. This week's episode talks about a series of sexual assaults. Details of this case may be hard to hear for some. We'll be using the terms victim and survivors interchangeably throughout this episode. Each term can mean something unique to the person living through this. Listener discretion is advised. For two years, the medical center area of San Antonio was terrorized. Women were getting attacked in their homes and sexually assaulted. The person behind those vicious attacks was someone no one expected, a teenager who was a known basketball player who went to John Marshall High School. This is South Texas Crime Stories, The Medical Center Rapist. June 3rd, 2016, a woman living at an apartment complex in the medical center area was getting ready to let her cat out. When she opened the door, a man with a hoodie was standing there and pushed his way into her apartment. The next moments were sheer terror. She was robbed of her money and then raped. Once he left, she called the police to report the horrific incident. December 22nd, 2016. Six months later, this hooded suspect would strike again at another apartment complex in the area. A woman heard a knock at her door, looked through the peephole, but nobody was there. A while longer, again another knock, and again nobody was there. Then a third time, she would open the door. This time, a man with a hoodie carrying a knife pushed his way in. He asked for money and then raped her. January 15th, 2017, not even a month later, and another attack in the same area. This time, a woman was heading into her apartment, and when she turned around, a gun was being pointed at her. The hooded suspect would rob and rape her as well. Police this time coming out to say they had a serial rapist on the loose and warning those who live in the medical center area to be cautious. May 28, 2017, another brazen attack five months after the last. This woman also pushed in her apartment at gunpoint, the hooded suspect robbing her of several items, including her watch, iPhone, and mini iPad. She was also raped, but this would be the last time the suspect would strike. A few weeks later, he was in handcuffs. A shock to most, the suspect, 18-year-old Anton Harris, just days before he had graduated from John Marshall High School, Chief William McManus telling the media that through DNA evidence, detectives were able to tie Harris to six cases at various apartment complexes. Harris, during his interrogation, also admitted to the crimes and to having sexually assaulted women since 2015. Harris was charged with five counts of aggravated sexual assault and one count of attempted aggravated sexual assault. Harris tried to take a plea deal on all charges in 2019 and pled guilty. The deal would have been 40 years in prison, but in a rare move, 399th District Court Judge Frank Castro rejected the plea deal. I'm not going to accept the, the plea agreement. 
five aggravated sexual assaults, all of them involving or alleged involving guns and knives. In addition, uh, the first victim and the first potential first uh, case to go to trial stated that they got strong opposition. Anton Harris didn't go to trial. That trial started in January 2020 for the attack of May 2017. Detectives testified that when they searched Harris's home, they found a gray hoodie, two guns, a knife, and a rose gold colored fossil watch, which ended up being the victim's watch. The jury would deliberate for five hours and came back with a guilty verdict. The sentencing phase began. Four other rape victims would take the stand and talk about their attacks. That testimony was enough for the jury to sentence Harris to 99 years in prison on the aggravated assault charge and 60 years on the aggravated robbery charge. This would be the last time Harris would hurt anybody again, but it wouldn't be the last time we see him in a courtroom. Okay, Erica, reading through all of this, I will say that I had moments of just chills and moments I just about cried reading what what happened. I couldn't imagine. I mean, I, I, I was at a time living here, a single woman by myself, and I couldn't even think what I would do if I was in those situations. It's so hard and unimaginable that terror that they were living at the time. Yeah, it, it just and it's not just them. It's the, the entire community hearing your police chief say, hey, we've got a serial rapist out here. That's got to send shockwaves through the entire city and, and surrounding communities. It's it's absolutely horrifying, terrifying to have something like that happening just in your backyard. Yeah. And, and for it to be at the time we were in when we first heard about it, we were it was in the middle of it. We didn't even know before that this was going on for already another year. You know, it's said 2015 to 2017. That's an extended period of time that police were investigating Harris, or at the time they didn't know, just an individual. But they kept having these same crimes happening over and over in the same area. And when something like this happens, it's really important to talk about the kinds of resources there are out there. And we have a great one here in San Antonio, the Rape Crisis Center San Antonio. Um, we were able to actually talk with them and, and get some statistics from them as well. Yeah, one of those statistics that I found really alarming and it's just almost shocking is that every 73 seconds, another American is sexually assaulted. But to, to think that every 73 seconds... That's just astonishing. It really is astonishing that something like that, that really happens so often. Um, they also have a 24-hour crisis intervention number. That number, 210-349-7273. And of course, if you're in a position you can't talk, there's other options too. You can also chat through an online chat as well. Yeah, and that's on their website. We'll have all that information in this article on our website as well, just so it, you know that it's there and that there is places for you to go. So we were able also to talk with several professionals with the Rape Crisis Center. They made themselves overly available to us. And one of them is Heather Sheely Maherder. She is a licensed professional counselor associate. The other is Amanda Harper, a victim advocate. We were able to speak with them over Zoom about this case and about just some, some details that you and I are not professional professionals when it comes to dealing with uh, survivors of sexual assault 
law orders reporters who talk about this kind of thing, but we thought it was really important in this case to go to the professionals who know a lot more than we do. Um, yeah, I, I, I wanted to ask you, because I know you, you talked to them specifically, and um, what was kind of, I guess, their response when you told them, hey, we're doing this podcast over this incident that happened? Did you get an idea of what, you know, do they not want us to do this? Did they want us to talk about it? What was the kind of overall sense you got from them? So I got the sense um, that they really wanted this to be victim and survivor centered. They didn't want us to have any, any misplaced glory to the attacker in this kind of a situation. They really wanted us to talk about the people who survived something like this. And that's kind of why we structured this podcast the way we did. And Erica, a choice that you made in this podcast was not to replay those 911 calls um, from the victims. We have access to those, but you made the choice not to play those in the women I spoke with at the Rape Crisis Center were like, we really applaud that decision because hearing that, a victim, when they make that call, they might be out of their body, not even recognize their own voice in that moment. And to hear themselves moments after something like that happens, that can be a very traumatizing thing. So they were very happy with the choice that you made. And they're happy that we're having this discussion because it is an important discussion to let people know, one, they're not alone, but two, there are resources and it's okay to feel how you feel after something like this happens. Yeah, and kind of a little backstory on that decision. So I was looking, listening to all the testimony um, we had on file from when we covered the case in 2020. And when you're in court, everything is revealed in court. There is no censorship. There is nothing of the sorts. Yeah, they were they were just very happy we made that choice and made the choice to really think about the people who lived through this when talking about a story like this one, because it's not just fiction, it's people's real lives and it's things that's going to impact them for a long time. Um, they also talked about that, that topic of the atmosphere and the Era, the atmosphere of the area and the city as a whole during these attacks. She used terms like primary trauma and secondary trauma. So primary trauma is for the person who's been victimized, who was actually attacked. Secondary trauma can come to people who live in the area, hearing about this, hearing about this on the news every night, court reporters covering this. So she talked about that and, and gave some good in, in, insight um, about how the area as a whole is, is affected. Let's take a listen to what Heather had to say. I can imagine that the effect of a repeated violent crime in a concentrated area would increase the need for caution, would decrease the, the general sense of felt safety. Um, and even after the individual is no longer free to commit such crime. Now, one thing I don't know if people understand is what goes on after a crime is reported. The victim will be taken for a SANE exam, which means sexual assault nurse examiner. Um, then a victim is paired with the victim advocate who really helps in every aspect. And this is a very critical step um, after a crime is reported because this is where a lot of the evidence is collected. And usually, you know, that can tie in if there's DNA evidence, um, can be used in court. It, it's just a really big step, but it's also a very hard step for these survivors. Exactly. And so what they were saying is the the survivor will have to tell their story initially to the officers who arrive on scene, talk about what happened. Then they'll have to go for their sand exam, retell their story again, 
then they're going to have to go and talk to a detective and retell that story again. And there's different forensic evidence collection points throughout that. And that can be scary. It can be overwhelming. You just went through something you never thought you would go through. So having a victim advocate hold your hand, get your food, get you a change of clothes, drive you around if need be, take care of everything that you need taking care of in that moment can really, really help. And uh, Amanda is one of those victim advocates. And she kind of talked about her work with survivors and victims after the fact. I work with them through the entire process from the exam to their forensic interview at SAPD to court accompaniment as well when or if their case goes to court. Um, I also, I consider myself a resource guru, so I hook them up with everything they need. Now, I think the next step in this process for, for the survivor is healing. And it's not the same for everybody. Like we always say every case is different. Every survivor and how they heal is different. Exactly. They, they really stressed it's not a linear path to healing. It's not if I follow X, Y, Z steps, I'm going to feel better and I can move on my way. It's a lot of times moving from the area. If you have the resources to move away from the area, a lot of times people don't have the resources to move away. It's changing a job, going to a new job. And there's something that triggers you in that new job. Every person is different after they've lived through something like this. And it's really important that the people who are in their lives accept the fact that one day they could be fine. And six months down the road, six years down the road, suddenly they're not fine anymore. And it's not just days, months, however long, it can be years, it can be decades that they're dealing with what they went through and their path to recovery can be completely different, but whatever that path is, it's completely okay. And Heather talked about that path a little bit and here's what she had to say about it. It's important uh, to really honor what they're experiencing and need in the days and years to come, like you mentioned. Um, and can naturally lead to struggles like anxiety and depression. And understandably so, those are normal, natural responses to trauma, but also so are healing and grieving in ways that allow a person to regain power and a voice in their own life. Now there is still, when I, we ended the first half, I, I made a comment of saying that well, it's not the last time we see Harris in a courtroom um, because there are still four cases pending. That was just one of the five. They don't try them all together. They try them usually separately. Sometimes they can clump them together, but I think they decided in this case um, they were going to try them separately. There is another hearing coming up for Harris. He has one May 24th. Um, I don't know if that's a possible plea deal hearing or a setting of a trial date. Um, there's not much detail when they give us these hearing dates, what's going to happen to them. But he he will be back in a courtroom soon this year. Um I do want to go back and talk about the re-victimization because all the survivors spoke on the stand and testified during the first trial. If this goes to trial again, they have to do it again. They have to take the stand again. And there can be some re-victimization about that. It's something also that the DA mentioned uh, in a subsequent interview uh, he said when it comes to prosecuting these, he's going to take that into consideration, the re-victimization. And it's a very real factor. And that's something that the victim advocate will go to court with uh, with a survivor and, and help them through that process. But it's also something um, 
that Heather spoke on that it, it can kind of be a catch 22, a good and a bad thing. Let's take a listen. Uh, it can come with some of that revictimization and that some of, um, you know, what, what therapy can help with as well as, as understanding how to navigate your story. And now I do want to go back into the investigation a little bit on, on Anton Harris and how he was actually caught. When we talked about the, the DNA evidence and how important it is in those same exams to collect, because once they do get that a DNA evidence from the potential suspect, they can check it to see if it matches. Now, in this case, I thought it was really interesting on how they got Harris's DNA. This, oh my word, this is straight out of a crime show, honestly. Like you've seen dramatized on TV. I could not believe this when we started digging into it and you were telling me more about it. Yeah, it was, this is very creative on, on investigators' parts to get this. So Harris is in school at this time. He's a senior at Marshall High School. Um, with the help of their police department, they were able to get a straw from a drink he was left behind at school. They collected that straw and that's how they were able to get his DNA evidence and then match it from the crime scenes. Like, my, if you all can see inside my brain, it just imploded on itself. The fact that, I mean, hats off to investigators too for being this creative and saying, hey, you know what? I think this would be a good way to get our guy. I wouldn't have thought of that. That just, I mean, it makes sense. You see it, people like walk over and like restaurants and TV shows and they stick something in their pocket. They're like, I have DNA now. But to know investigators are actually being this creative in real life, I mean, hats off to them because it worked. It did work. And um, and then that was what I think shocked everybody when the suspect was named, that this was essentially a child. Like, this was a teenager, you know, and it was possible that he had been committing these crimes or his first attack as early as 16 years old. I mean... The motive, how could someone that young have this thought in their head is what blows my mind. And I was talking to friends and family about this case and all they could say were monsters are real. And I think back to when I was 16, I was scared to drive my mom's car. I can't put myself in that mindset that headspace where someone could think to do something like this at that young of age. And it's also something we asked the, the rape crisis center about, and it's something they didn't want to, to talk about. They are like, you know, we don't want to talk about his motivation, what he did to people. We want to focus on the survivors and on the victims. And just, it, it just boggles the mind to think that at that young, someone would make this conscious choice over and over and over and over again. And I, I kind of applaud uh, Judge Castro in this because it almost was like he was trying to take the easy way out with the plea deal. Now, that was 40 years for all five cases, which meant he would have been eligible for parole at 20 years. That doesn't mean guarantee that somebody's going to walk out of prison, but the idea that he possibly could at 20 years after serving half for numerous cases of sexual assaults um, I'm, I'm really glad he rejected that plea deal, um, which is like I, I, we put in here, is very rare. It doesn't happen often, at least I haven't seen happen often here in Bear County, where a judge rejects a plea deal. 
But in this case, I think it was necessary. And watching back on our previous coverage, trying to do some research on this, you see him say, you know, we're going to take the victims into account and, you know, hats off to him because that's that's who this is about. And he said either he said it or one of the prosecuting attorneys said you sentence the victims to a life sentence in this. And that should be taken into consideration when it comes to Anton Harris's sentencing as well. Yeah, and we'll see how this continues to play out in court. This remains in Judge Castro's courtroom, the rest of the um, the trials or the the cases um, in which we will be following closely. Um, it's a case that it will not be forgotten here in San Antonio. And I do want to end with saying that 24-hour crisis intervention number one more time, just for those who didn't hear it the first time and weren't able to catch it. That number is 210 210- or you could also talk to them through their online chat on their website. Well, thanks everyone so much for being with us this week. Make sure to tune in next week for another episode of South Texas Crime Stories. 